I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives. Today, I wanted to elaborate on a theme that I often bring up, which is the need to understand the real scope and scale of what we're dealing with in this country as far as the contamination legacy. And the real sources of information available to you about these issues are way too few and far between. So I'm going to share with you some readings from some of my favorite books on the topic that empower and inform, uh, not intended to demoralize or to send you into a downward spiral of depression, but to, in fact, hopefully galvanize your intensity to turn around what is a runaway train of self-destruction and can be called nothing less than a nihilistic way of living, which are contradictory things, meaning you can't live and celebrate life when you are foundationally a nihilist. And the relation between the industrial machine and health and well-being is the theme that I'm going to elaborate on because it seems that in the United States we have very little understanding of another way of living, a way that isn't based on self-annihilation, self-condemnation, and basically sentencing the citizens of this country to a premature death at the hands of dirty industries who are in collusion with our governmental regulatory agencies. In addition, what I'm going to share with you is what I see as the solutions to pollution, which is not dilution. You know, interestingly, in one of the books that I'm going to share some bits and pieces from, this one is entitled, What's wrong with what we drink troubled water by seth m siegel it's a very recent book this book came out in 2019 <clears throat> and you know it becomes really clear as you read these books these treatises on the environmental legacy that there's there's even gaps within the understanding that these well-intended authors who are doing what I would call valiant expose journalism, there's still gaps in their understanding of really the scope of what we're dealing with, as well as very little understanding of a truly comprehensive solution. Also, just to mention in the background, I'm playing one of my favorite recordings. This is a complete sessions compilation of Bitches Brew, which is certainly what it is that we've been spewing and allowing private industries to put into our water, air, soil, children, and families. In this book, Troubled Water, one of the gaps, he doesn't even mention Mr. Siegel, the author, who is certainly well-educated and well-informed. However, misses a really fundamental point, which is that the National Academy of Sciences found, in fact, there's a phenomenon that is totally 
untended to by our regulatory agencies. And this phenomenon is described by a fun word that I've suggested to my students you could pull out at cocktail parties to impress your friends with. And this word is multiple exposure synergy. What multiple exposure synergy describes is the reality as the National Academy of Sciences discovered it when they did epidemiological and toxicological tests on biological and living beings. It turns out that what happens when you are exposed to a carcinogen, let's say inhaling a formaldehyde fume from the off-gassing of the dashboard of your new car, and that carcinogen interacts in your body because we are test agents for this chemical cocktail. And when you inhale that formaldehyde fume and you inhale neurotoxins and naphthalates from the fabric softener that was put into your laundry, and then you take a swig off of the soft plastic water bottle that was on the back shelf of your car getting nice and warm for a couple days and you ingest some endocrine disruptors, it turns out that the National Academy of Sciences discovered that inside our own body, which as a quick aside, the National Institute of Health estimates that your average American has 52 different synthetic chemicals coursing through their bloodstream. Average means that that number is higher in some and lower in others. But suffice it to say, that's quite a few chemicals to have in your body that are interacting in ways that turn out to be synergistic. And in this instance, this word synergy is not a good thing. Because here's what it means. It means that when you are exposed to the carcinogen and the neurotoxin and the endocrine disruptor depresses your immune system and its capacity to work well, you are actually 10 times more likely to contract cancer from the carcinogen because of the way the chemicals interact. They are actually making the health hazards far more egregious, potent, and literally exponentially damaging to our bodies. So let's take that into account as we start into this mire, this quagmire that I'm gonna wade you through of some of the chemical legacy and really, let me just start out at the beginning, and I'll also touch on this in the middle and wrap it up at the end, which is, what's the solution? Why am I so passionate, first, about sharing this information with you? One, because I trust, as a caring and thoughtful human being listening to this podcast, you are going to appreciate the fact that I am giving you specifics, a surgical tool by which to extract yourself from the contamination syndrome and put yourself into safe havens, and at the same time, how to understand, in fact, how broad, widespread, and systemic this is, which is pointing to the solution that I'm working on, articulating, writing a book about, working with graduates to do design plans on, and if any of you have any interest in helping me to figure out how to finance this, please reach out to me because this work that I'm doing is only out of my own pocket and it's my own individual work. And it's about creating watershed plans and master plans for towns, municipalities, and whole regions that are very scientifically and data heavy in their basis. And these plans that I'm working on that I would love anybody's help with who sees the need 
which I think you'll clearly see as you listen to these podcasts and others. And the need is to create a regional master plan that makes it clear what our trajectory is to become more food independent in beyond organic ways, tapping into agroforestry, agroecology, rebuilding wild ecosystems that provide us with incredibly potent and nutrient-dense foods, as well as creating regional plans for becoming diverse in our energy systems based 100% on renewables and based on cutting down on the need for energy in the first place and how it is that we're getting work done, meaning maxing out what we get done for free by things like tidal energy and the sun rising and setting and the wind blowing and water flowing. And as we look at these natural, abundant, potent energy sources and these natural, abundant, and potent food sources, and we begin to come up with these regional master plants, we can truly extricate ourselves from these contamination legacies that I'm going to be going more into here in a moment for you. Okay, so I wanted to first start out with saying, please don't be demoralized. Please accept that we have a very clear and articulate understanding of how to solve these problems that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Because many people find that it can be a very heavy load to bear when I begin to itemize for you what some of these excellent authors have been putting out in their books that I also find far too few readers and Americans have actually had any familiarity with. So both in this podcast, I'm going to be sharing with you some of that very important information that I found by these authors, which in and of itself I believe is valuable and has meaning and is a great use of this medium for you to educate yourself in how to understand the toxicological realities of the American landscape and to navigate through them in a way that's intelligent, thoughtful, and strategic, and how to navigate our way towards a collective plan to become more food independent and more energy independent as two key ways to begin to solve the systemic problem of this contamination legacy beyond simply litigation and mitigation, which at present, many of these well-intended authors seem to have no imagination beyond those two approaches. We're either going to create better laws and we're going to create green infrastructure, but very little understanding of this third approach that I'm suggesting is key to those first two of litigation and mitigation, which the third approach is prevention. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And what that means is beyond mitigating and litigating is the potential to actually utterly and completely eliminate these things that we're having to sue people for and try to put Band-Aid measures and filters on pipes. And we can actually replace the means by which we feed ourselves, house ourselves, fuel ourselves, and clothe ourselves to no longer be activities that actually contaminate and degrade the earth, but actually restore, refurbish, and create real health and wealth for ourselves and present generations and future generations. Now, three of the books that I want to share with you. Here's one. I'm going to start with this one. This is called The Green Amendment. It's by Maya K. Von Rossum. I've done some readings from it before really appreciate the work that Maya K. Von Rossum is doing. 
She is the executive director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Organization and has helped citizen groups to deal with much of the contamination legacy that's going on. And the section I want to read to you from her book is really about how it is that we begin to address some problems that are actually very close to home for myself and probably for many of my listeners here in the Northeast. So here we go. We are in page 174 of the Green Amendment. The Buried Toxins at Bishop Tube. Excessive commercial development saddles us with more than boarded up strip malls and increased flooding. It also creates potentially environments that are hard to remediate and pose long-term threats to residents. East Whiteland Township in Pennsylvania's Chester County is home to the now defunct Bishop Tube Company, a manufacturer of stainless steel pipes. Just as a quick aside, Chester County, PA, that's where I hail from, where I was raised. And I think interestingly enough, part of also the story that I'm about to share uh, ties into what it is that has inspired me to become an environmental activist and an ecological educator. So back to our book and our reading here. In 1972, government officials found elevated levels of fluoride in Little Valley Creek, which they later traced back to industrial discharges emanating from Bishop Tube's facility. But that was only the first hint that the Bishop Tube site was spewing harmful contaminants from the plant into the environment in neighboring communities. In the 1990s, the federal EPA began studying an industrial solvent called TCE, querying its possible effects on people. According to Ralph Vartabadian, who broke a two-part expose on the chemical for the Los Angeles Times, EPA officials determined that trichloroethylene, or TCE, was as much as 40 times more likely to cause cancer than the EPA had previously believed. As the EPA planned to alert the public and control the substance, the Defense Department intervened. Apparently, over a thousand military bases were contaminated with TCE, and the, P and the EPA's actions would prove onerous from a financial and public relations standpoint. Onerous. Hmm. The EPA, under the stewardship of Bush administration, officials supportive of the Defense Department, imagine that, was powerless to continue its work. As a result, notes Vartabadian, any conclusion about whether millions of Americans were being contaminated by TCE was delayed indefinitely. But ignoring TCE didn't make it go away. According to TCE expert and Boston University epidemiologist David Ozanoff, it just meant more unexplained birth defects and cancer in the country. It is a world trade center in slow motion, noted Ozanoff. You would never notice it. UC San Francisco environmental medicine expert and natural resources defense council scientist Dr. Gina Solomon concurred. 
The evidence on TCE is overwhelming, she said. We have 80 epidemiological studies and hundreds of toxicology studies. They are fairly consistent in finding cancer risks that cover a range of tumors. The White House provided a large grant to the National Academy of Sciences, the same entity that I mentioned discovered multiple exposure synergy, to study the substance in 2004 and 2007. It linked the chemical to many human health diseases, and in 2011, the EPA belatedly classified TCE as, quote, a human carcinogen. Jonathan Haar helped introduce the perils of TCE to the public at large. His book, A Civil Action, 1995, detailed a harrowing episode of TCE water contamination in Woburn, Massachusetts, and the child leukemia that resulted. This book, which also became a major motion picture featuring John Travolta and Robert Duvall, forms part of many law school curricula. Great, but how many Americans know about it? Because the reality is each of you who are listening need to be privy to this kind of reality that's going on so you know how to research it for yourself because guess what? The federal government isn't going to create a news program about this data, you're going to need to be your own research hound, and that's what I hope you'll appreciate about this content I'm sharing with you here today. To continue, although many residents of Chester County didn't realize it, Bishop Tube was using TCE all along. Lots of it. During the manufacturing process, the company pickled its pipes, bathing the stainless steel in an acidic chemical bath laced with TCE. The toxin also figured prominently in the final part of the pipe preparation, known as degreasing. When the finished products also soaked in a giant vat of TCE, Keith Hartman, a longtime company employee, describes TCE's ubiquity on company grounds, noting that people interfaced with the substance without covering their skin, utterly unaware of any danger. David Worst, a 17-year Bishop Tube veteran, 1972-1989, likewise describes seeing open waste pits, spills, and other hot spots of TCE contamination. He and his co-workers were shocked to learn that while the company was purchasing clean water for communities nearby to use, concerned that water in these communities had been contaminated, it failed to take similar protective steps for its own workers. Other residents of East Whiteland Township interfaced with the site too. Paula Warren has lived nearby since she was born in 1951, the same year that Bishop II began its operations. She still vividly remembers the day in 1972 when she and her cousin Dale swam in Little Valley Creek located approximately 10,000 feet from her home. As they wound their way down the stream, they gazed in disbelief at the fluorescent blue-green water issuing from a nearby culvert. They traced the water to its source, a place called Bishop Tube. They excitedly told their family about it, and no one even considered that it could be deadly. If only, Paula says, shaking her head in regret. In 1990, Paula received notice that her family's well water, which they had been innocently consuming since 1953, 
was contaminated with deadly levels of TCE and many other carcinogens. The Philadelphia Suburban Water Company told her family to thereafter, quote, minimize consumption. How's that for vagaries? Paula's small family of two parents and three children, which had no predisposition for cancer, developed five different types. Her brother and mother ultimately died of the disease. 27 years after Paula's initial contamination notice arrived, groundwater still tests positive for high levels of TCE. Besides rendering her family's beautiful 1.1 acres totally worthless, the toxic groundwater has taken a physical toll. Memory loss, chronic vertigo, headaches, decreased mental function, brain fog, and liver failure. Her family has experienced them all. These are precisely the kinds of illnesses that the scientific literature has associated with TCE exposure. Our house is trying to kill us, she notes. Living approximately 100 yards from the plant over the years of its operation, Kate and Larry Stauffer noticed intermittent chlorine-like smells around their property but thought little of it. We were busy raising a family and didn't pay too much attention to what was going on, Larry remembers. The plant closed in 1999 when the couple's oldest son, Nicholas, was in high school. He often joined his friends to hang out in the facility's abandoned buildings. The couple's daughter, Liz, who was born in 1990, played in nearby Little Valley Creek, the same creek that was later found to be heavily contaminated from the site. All three Stouffer children collected rocks from the creek for a geology unit in their middle school science classes. On his daily walk with the dogs, Larry sometimes noticed overwhelming chemical smells coming from the buildings. He and his wife discouraged their children from playing in these areas, but as the couple later learned, people didn't have to enter the buildings to be exposed to toxins from Bishop Tube's operations. Since 2006, Liz has been diagnosed with three brain tumors. Kate and Larry don't know whether to blame Bishop Tube for their daughter's cancer. Because of the many toxins and contaminants in the environment, medical and legal professionals often can't conclusively link individual toxins and specific health outcomes. How many toxic chemicals? Well, the total number that's estimated in the United States is somewhere around, oh, 80,000. And the amount that come onto the market every year is somewhere around 2,000. Very, very few of these have even been tested. My view on this issue has been that the burden of proof should fall upon industries to show the public that anything they want to put into the public sector, which is our air, water, soil, and natural system, anything they want to release, they need to prove to us before they use it that it's not carcinogenic, it's not teratogenic, it's not mutagenic, and it's not an endocrine disruptor. Because anything short of putting the burden of proof upon the industry means that the burden of proof falls upon the citizen, which is a needle in a haystack for an epidemiological scientist to be able to prove that one of these 
tens of thousands of chemicals that are in the American landscape is what gave you cancer and then be able to sue for accountability to a private industry. This is a backwards process. The Stouffers nonetheless find it eerie that so many in nearby neighborhoods have suffered serious illnesses, including other children. Five neighborhood children received cancer diagnoses within a year of each other, including Liz's friend from down the road. After conducting their own research, the Stouffers found TCE exposure has been linked to central nervous system defects. Although Liz is thankfully in remission now, many others in the small community continue to suffer from life-threatening illnesses. David Wurst, for example, now suffers from an incurable cancer, and many of his former co-workers have died from cancer or other neurological diseases. As Paula Warren notes, perhaps the ones who died of cancer are the lucky ones. They weren't around long enough to experience the long-term effects of TCE, the gift that keeps on giving. What should become of the Bishop Tube site? In 2005, developer J. Brian O'Neill began surveying the property, hoping to entice another commercial operation to move in. When that didn't materialize, he flirted with the idea of converting the site into an athletic complex. O'Neill eventually discarded those plans, applying to rezone the facility as a residential space, where his firm envisioned building over 200 townhomes. O'Neill has applied to the township for a variance that would allow him to carve out steep slopes on the site to accommodate his building plans. According to the proposed plan, O'Neill's firm would cut trees and excavate the natural areas that cover much of the site to accommodate homes, roads, driveways, and lawns. As contaminated as the land may be, Bishop Tube is the only open space available to this community. It's the only place residents can go to hear birds, see the trees, and enjoy nature's serenity. Likewise, Little Valley Creek is part of a watershed that is officially designated as exceptional value and entitled to significant protection under Pennsylvania state law. O'Neill has reached out to Pennsylvania's DEP seeking exemptions to protected buffer requirement that the creek and community are entitled to under state law. The closer O'Neill can get to the creek, the more homes he can build and the greater his return on investment in the property. Residents weren't happy about losing their oasis of green space to a development project, but community members were positively alarmed to discover the inadequate measures that O'Neill's development company planned to undertake before breaking ground, and that the Pennsylvania DEP seemed to be accepting. TCE and the other heavy metal contamination persist on the site, with contamination extending down to the bedrock through saturated soils and infusing toxins into groundwater supplies. TCE compounds have been found at 50 feet, 200 feet, and even more than 300 feet below the ground surface. O'Neill planned to remediate contamination from only a portion of the site, and these efforts would extend only to soils approximately 7 to 25 feet below the earth. 
contaminated groundwater, saturated soils, and the deeper areas of contamination would be left unaddressed. What a nice gift for future generations. Contamination of Little Valley Creek would continue. To David Worst, these efforts were woefully inadequate having struggled for over a decade to have the site remediated before any new activity was allowed, he was appalled that O'Neill's plan would fail to clean up all the contamination in and under the entire property prior to development. Our objective was to have this cleaned up completely, Worst said, and once it's cleaned up, then we talk about what to do with it. At one community meeting, Larry asked O'Neill's lawyer if the company had tested the whole site for contaminants. As community members recall, the lawyer said the company was only testing what the state DEP required, which was not the entire site. O'Neill remained adamant that he would only address identified hot spots. There was also talk of vapor barriers to prevent potentially harmful fumes from entering the new townhouses but the actual plan remained unclear. That response hardly assuaged local residents. It was clear to them that the site would remain dangerously contaminated, not fully cleaned up as part of O'Neill's development plans. They also realized that no one could answer the question of when they might expect full remediation or anything close to it. At subsequent community meetings, residents expressed fear that these inadequate remediation efforts would further expose the community, including its children, to toxins. What would happen when you had children playing in the backyard and a company started digging into the ground releasing airborne contaminants? Would the kids be exposed to the toxins? Can you imagine raising your family in that kind of environment? And what about the new families buying homes built on a still-contaminated site? What about their health and their children? Further questions arose about how O'Neill's development plan would impact future attempts to remediate groundwater, Little Valley Creek, or other contaminated areas associated with the site. When residents raised such issues, O'Neill and his spokespeople were defiant, telling the community that no one would be willing to do a better job than they would but the community disagrees. It now fights for a full cleanup of the site and the preservation of its little patch of nature. As is so often the case, the developer and the state are using the site's contaminated condition as an excuse to try to force development rather than to protect and restore it. Now here's a broad view number that I want you to appreciate, and I'm pausing before I read it for that reason. Bishop Tube is among some 450,000 contaminated sites dotting this country, known as brownfields. These sites often result from unbridled, environmentally irresponsible activities. Such sites that may endanger public health or the environment and that the EPA has identified as candidates for federal investment and intervention to secure remediation join the Superfund program. In March 2017, the U.S. had 1,337 such Superfund sites, with New Jersey claiming the most 114 and California coming in second with 98. 
Matthew Stanislaus, who oversaw the EPA's Superfund program during the Obama administration, notes that about one in six citizens, totaling 53 million people, lives only miles from such a site. Federal and state Superfund sites are often inadequately remediated. Saturated with dangerous levels of toxins, they endanger new developments as well as nearby residents who are unlucky enough to live close by. Consider Niagara Falls Love Canal neighborhood. Unbeknownst to the local inhabitants, Hooker Chemical Company discharged over 21,000 tons of toxins into the canal during the 1940s and 1950s. Developers sealed the contaminants, constructing schools and homes atop the waste site. All was fine until 1977 when the region experienced unusually high volumes of precipitation. Contaminants leached into the town's groundwater and surged into local homes and yards. After Love Canal's residents reported increased rates of cancer, miscarriage, and children's disabilities, the Carter administration evacuated the area and compensated hundreds of families. Congress enacted the Superfund program to help ensure that such a tragedy would never befall another community. Love Canal, which the Associated Press referred to as, quote, a symbol of environmental catastrophe, was subsequently remediated, or at least that was the plan. Although complete streets were permanently bulldozed above Love Canal, notes the Associated Press. Those immediately north and west of the landfill were refurbished following a $230 million cleanup that involved capping the canal with clay, a plastic liner, and topsoil. Who do you think footed the bill for that 230 mil? We did. Our tax dollars, not Hooker Chemical, which if you do your homework, you'll find out, is a subsidiary of Dow Chemical. During the 1990s, developers attracted new residents with lower real estate prices and assurances that all chemicals were long gone. But once citizens repopulated the town, the same mysterious ailments began re-emerging. Lois Gibbs, who was a Love Canal housewife and the whistleblower of the issue, who spread awareness about the contamination in the 1970s and urged people against reoccupying the remediated community. Describing her return to the community in 2013, she said, it was so weird to go back and stand next to someone who was crying and saying the exact same thing I said 35 years ago. Too often, Real estate developments near the myriad toxic sites dotting America's landscape are not safe. The University of Missouri School of Medicine and the University of Florida recently collaborated on a study linking Superfund sites and cancer spikes in Florida. Florida ranks sixth in the country for contaminated land with 77 Superfund sites in total. Researchers looked for cancer clusters proximate to these sites, focusing on adult cancers that are less likely attributable to genetics. What they found was alarming. We reviewed adult cancer rates in Florida from 1986 to 2010. Our goal was to determine if there were differences or associations regarding cancer incidents in counties that contain Superfund sites compared to counties that do not. We found the rate of cancer incidents increased by more than 
6% in counties with Superfund sites. Now, you might think, oh, well, 6%, that doesn't sound that much. Oh, it's a lot if you're one of those 6%. While this information is useful for public health professionals and city planners, it provides yet more data to support a truism we've observed multiple times throughout this book. Environmental toxins are deadly for our landscapes and our bodies and must be eliminated from the landscape. So let me go forward here and just pick another section that I really think synopsizes some foundational issues that we've got some great writing here on from Maya Rossum. And this is a little piece I want to share about development. And I like some of the, the ways that she describes what are we really talking about when we talk about these uh, schemes to develop places? Such stories of inappropriate or excessive land development will appeal to many people's sense of fairness or justice, but they hit me especially hard. When I was growing up, my town of Villanova in, Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia suburbs formed part of a swath of communities known affectionately as the main line. And I'm going to skip forward in this section. She's talking about a highway that went in where she grew up. With the highway came still more development, an influx of homes and shopping malls and a dramatic reduction in open space. I'm not opposed to development per se, but in places like Radnor, where Villanova is located, and nearby Hamilton, the fever to build was so great that it proceeded without proper care for the environment. Rather than gently nestle homes into the forest, preserving as many trees as possible, Developers, with the government's blessing, clear-cut forests and moonscaped the land, creating massive homes with lots of lawn, oversized driveways, and thick roads to accommodate increased traffic. Rather than building away from the creeks and wetlands, volunteering a buffer of vegetation that would protect both the natural habitat and the community from flooding, erosion, and pollution, developers built as close to the water's edge as possible. The rainfall that once soaked into the soil now had nowhere to go. Rather than see this rainfall turn stormwater as the resource that supported the wetlands and creeks, and rather than developing in ways that would soak the water back into the ground as nature had intended, developers in Radnor and Hamilton constructed vast detention basins that collected and delivered water directly into local creeks. The predictable result was endemic flooding, erosion, and pollution problems across the region. The real tragedy of situations like Eastwick's is that they don't need to happen. In this country, we know how to develop communities in ways that don't inflict so much harm. Beyond that, we know how to design communities in ways that are actually restorative to ecological health. 
All too often, we simply don't do it. Under the current system of legislative environmentalism, real estate developers nearly always have carte blanche to undertake projects with little concern for the effects on nature. Municipal officials approve development projects on a piecemeal basis and fail to put in place legal mandates that ensure best practices. While some development projects require initial community planning, developers inevitably argue that exceptions to environmental prohibition should be made for their projects. Think of O'Neill's insistence on relief from protecting steep slopes trees in the exceptional water source buffer so that he could maximize profit on his investment. Because approval processes tend to be piecemeal, any regulator or government official can accept a developer's rationale and grant relief while still claiming to comply overall with regulatory standards and zoning ordinances. Although a single development project like Bishop Tube, a Sierra Nevada ski resort, a Hamilton Township strip mall, or another Radnor McMansion may seem to contribute relatively little to water pollution, flooding, or land despoilation, cumulatively, these projects have devastated our environments and endangered our communities. A constitutional provision would bring about meaningful improvements in U.S. real estate regulation by compelling government agencies to change the way they think about development. Imagine what Truckee, Love Canal, or Hamilton Township would look like if regulators weren't just constrained by local ordinances that are too easy to circumvent on a case-by-case -case basis, but were instead held to a higher constitutional standard. Instead of quibbling about code and variances, the courts would be asking a whole different set of questions. Would subdividing this parcel for ranchettes in the Sierra Nevada allow for a healthy environment for all California? Or would it imperil wildlife and cause forest fires? Would sealing the Love Canal and building a community on top of it ensure that the environment was healthy and protected? Or would this unacceptably perilous given, or would this be unacceptably perilous given the site and local conditions? Would the next strip mall in Hamilton Township impact the rights of locals to a healthy environment? Or must developers consider stormwater, flooding, and drought precautions, as well as the right to healthy creeks with healthy fish? Most who would object to a constitutional approach to real estate development invariably raise the specter of money. Times are hard, developers constantly say in the face of community opposition to their projects. We need to build in order to increase our tax base, pump money into the local economy, and create jobs. Developers rely heavily on this argument when attempting to secure approval for any industrial, commercial, or residential activity. Protecting the environment sounds nice, but it hurts people. If we want jobs around here, if we want a thriving economy, industry needs to be able to invest and build as it sees fit. As we'll explore, such logic is deeply flawed. Not only is environmental protection economically feasible, it actually provides enduring financial benefits to our community, state, regional, and national economies. 
The truth is the opposite. We can't afford not to put strong constitutional safeguards in place to protect the environment for ourselves and our posterity. So I'm going to leave off there with that reading. It's a great book. And for today's podcast, I'm going to wrap up with a section from The Pecan, which I read from in a previous podcast. This is a book by James McWilliams, A History of America's Native Nut. I'm going to wrap up with this because this really outlines another layer of the contamination legacy, but also the direction to healing and a model of growth that actually grows health and true wealth, which is the quality of the air, water, soil, and genetic integrity of the American people and landscape. Okay, and this is from Chapter 6, Pecans for the World, The Pecan Goes Industrial. Great synopsis in this paragraph here at the beginning of this chapter. If scientific agriculture came of age in the late 1800s, modern agribusiness arose in full force after World War I. Between 1920 and 1945, American farming matured into a substantial industry led by growers who built large plantations and relentlessly produced only a single crop. A potent combination of forces, technical, political, and ideological, converged to transform agriculture in the United States from, and here's the key part of this, from a regional-based diverse endeavor into an export monoculture cash crop with hybrid seeds, tractors, mechanized plows, pesticide blasters, and scores of other technologies. See, so we shifted from just 1920 to 1945 from a regional-based diverse form of agriculture to monocrop chemical-intensive export. We don't need to export. We need to produce more of what it is that we consume right at home in ways that are truly resilient, beyond organic, and healthy to eliminate the cause of all of this nightmarish contamination that I just shared with you in today's podcast. Again, I encourage you to take this information as an inspiration to study further designing our way out of repeating these mistakes, learning from them, and creating a legacy for future generations to thank us rather than leaving them with toxic wastelands pockmarking where they grow up. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to your feedback. Stay strong, stay clear, and let's articulate and create new ways of living that are connected to the earth and considerate of what our children are going to inherit.